Hi, everyone. Raghu back with Mind Rolling. And I have a very special first time meeting guest. I, I just told Sarah I'm so lucky in the midst of the pandemic to be able to meet and make new friends by virtue of these podcasts. Uh, and I say that a lot, but I really mean it. I mean, it's been just such a, a gift in the midst of all this. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And I agree with you. These conversations, these mindful, considered conversations are sort of the silver lining in many ways of what's been going on in the world. Yeah. And there's, a, there is a lot of that. So in, in a minute, yeah, this is a very, oh, oh, I would say, let me tell you that another thing that I've been saying, because something I picked up from somebody who the ancient Chinese in moments of this kind of chaos and uncertainty and unpredictability, they call this dangerous opportunity. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Yeah, I like that. I'm wondering what they mean by dangerous. I suppose it's dangerous to the extent that we could take it one way or the other. Yeah. And yeah. um, I'm reminded just to go from the sublime to the ridiculous. Milton Friedman, you know, so the founder of mm. neoliberalism, mm. he um, has a sort of a, a related saying. He said that a crisis can bring about great change. In fact, it's the greatest forum for bringing about change. But it depends on the ideas that are lying around at the time. And I suppose that can be dangerous, right, one way or another. It can, it can be wonderful or it could be going the other way. And I suppose that's the opportunity we all face right now. Yeah, and you say it in the very beginning uh, where I have a little note here. Um, uh, you say, I realize now uh, you were referring to someone, uh, to what someone had said about what we're going through. Um, we need to steer our energy beyond our own issues to helping others and helping the planet out, not in. I mean, I would add to that the the in needs to be there. If we're not attending to the in, you know who Ramdas is, by the way. I forgot to even yes. say that. To yes, you. I do, of course. Yeah, well, I know who he is, and I I very much know um, various quotes and you mm, know, yeah, 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 memes memes that he is is responsible for. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, he, he used to say, and it was very, you know, he did a tremendous amount of social action over his life, uh, his lifetime. And he would emphasize, you, you have got to be working on cleaning your heart up bef- as you work with social action in whatever way you're doing that. So this is yeah. very much that. Um, you brought up a, a really interesting thing there, though, and I think this yeah. is the distinction that's really interesting to make, and I suppose it pertains to a lot of people listening to this podcast because, you, you know, I'm presuming a lot of your listeners have, you know, some kind of spiritual practice and are engaged in that realm. Um, I, I make that statement to sort of clarify that a lot of spiritual practice today can tend to be too far inwards. And so it's, I, I, I juxtapose it against the, the parable of the monk who comes down from the mountain, you know, after doing a lot of inward work, meditating up in his cave for years on end, um, before he realises, and there's various versions of this story in different spiritual traditions but realize it's got to come back down to the village you've got to be in the world to pass on whatever wisdoms you start to you know that you are able to develop um, with your inner life and I feel that the spiritual um, traditions the spiritual um, practices that are around at the moment have gone too far inwards so we see people getting very cherry picking the nice bits of spirituality, you know, the love and light and neglecting the other aspect of it, which is being of service and sacrifice and so on. And that's very much the point I make. I think we've got a little bit too, I think the individualism of contemporary culture has taken spirituality in too far of an individualistic Mm -hmm. uh, direction and there needs to be balance. Yeah, but I I think that... uh... I don't think it's the tradition. I think it's us as individuals, okay? And Mm. all of what is available is all about, you know, as the Buddhists put it the best, bodhisattva vow. I'm not going anywhere until everybody's free, period. Yes. And that is the focus. But you talk in the book also about spiritual bypassing, which is really what you're talking about right now. 
of taking right. all of this stuff and yeah, it enhances the ego in just a different way. Uh, I was just talking to a group of people the other night just about this. So it's very, very easy to co-op these mm. kinds of grand spiritual behavior that we think looks good, which is why Ramdas was so great because he he was honest about his bullshit. And it allowed many people to be honest, more honest themselves. And I think that's what we're talking about. And I think if that happens, then, uh, yeah, there's a balance. You can't, uh, I mean, there are, there are beings that are sitting up in caves in those Himalayas. I have seen them uh, mm. that need to be doing whatever the hell they're doing and then coming down. And uh, the ones that are really advanced don't even need the body thing. And they are affecting stuff in a way that we can't even imagine. Um, but, you, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little story from my time in India. Uh, first time I've been, I've lived in India a lot. Uh, but yeah. the first time when I met uh, the guru, Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru. Um, and at one point through a whole incredible uh, um, moment of, me just trying to go to Delhi to get a new passport and him telling me I was basically going to meet Tibetan people, uh, a Lama who's going to give me teachings. And it all happened and blew my mind. But the real thing was, I mean, it was all real. <laughs> it was all beyond real. This, uh, this Lama, Kalu Rinpoche is his name, was one mm -hmm. of the great Lamas of the last century. And I asked him just that question. I said, you know, I just came from the mountains and meditating. I'm like in this incredibly free place do I have to stay there? <laughs> Is that the only way I'm going to be? I got to hold on to this. You got it? I got to hold yeah, on. Yeah. So he said, absolutely not. In fact, and he told me the stories of the seven siddhas who lived in India a long, long time back. Each of them became realized free through work, through one or another, a weaver, a potter, whatever, all of the, all of the different uh, occupations at the time. And that's he said, that is what it's about. It, it is yes. not about going into a cave. Yes, of course, that's part of any kind of process, which is retreat, which you're talking about throughout this book, that your main practice seems to me is being in nature, hiking, and absorbing uh, the support that that provides, which is... Uh, so that you can then go back to everyday life, whatever that might look like for you, the hecticness of living in a city or suburban life or whatever it might be, and be of service. And I think I think the, one of the things is um, the times are dictating that we go out, not in. The world is calling us out to be of service. It's asking us to step up and meet it so that we can save it. And I think the collective is needs to be a priority for a while. And I think we we go through phases throughout history. There are times where it's appropriate to go inwards, and it's that that whole sort of Vedic um, notion of creation, maintenance, destruction. And I think there's behaviour and practices that are pertinent for different phases. And at the moment, I think the world is calling out. You know, nature, Mother Nature is calling out to us and going, come on, humans, use your evolution, everything that you've managed to kind of work on to meet me and love me, love this wild and precious life so that you can save it, so that you can really, um, really honour it. And I feel that that's the call to action and I feel that, you know, the readers of my book are really starting to feel that and we've, we've, we've lost the ability to... We've lost the respect for that. We've lost the understanding of how important that is because, and you said that it's our individual behaviour and interpretation of these spiritual traditions, and I'd say that, I'd say that it's also very much the capitalist or neoliberal system that has told us that individualism is the way to go. And, and that goes against our nature. We just, it's not going to take much for us to swing back around Jesus. because it's in our nature to be connected to to the one, not yeah. to be so fragmented. I, I that's very optimistic, actually, Sarah. When <laughs> I I'm living over here, and 71 million people voted I no know. to that. I mean, yeah. that's a very big generalization, but they voted no 
thinking that any kind of uh, you know reading of what would happen in the future around collective and they of course it's marxism communism we're going to get taken over kind of a thing so oh, yeah. it's a very it's a it's a very difficult thing uh, and but that's a lack of leadership good leadership really and yeah. and i cover this in the book i wrote the book obviously well before this trump catastrophe although there's an anecdote that i share in joshua tree where i was there when trump announced that he was running for president you know oh, this um, book was written for for uh, four years ago well, well it was written it took me three years to research it so oh, wow. i researched it as you know it's a journey and i go mm. on a journey for three years to investigate yeah. these ideas yeah. and in the final parts of the book, you know, COVID hits and then yeah, the yeah. you know the whole Trump thing, you know, yeah. builds up and then the Black Lives Matters protest yeah. also happened in the final sort of days of me writing mm. this book. So mm. um, it's very, very current. But um, I talk about this in the book, that whether you are a climate denier, a Trump supporter, whatever, I think that we are all feeling the same pain. And this is the challenge that I put to readers of the book is, you know, to quote um, Rumi, out beyond ideas of right and wrongdoing, there's a field Let's meet there. Mm, mm. And I think that's the challenge that we face. You know, that what is it, that Chinese proverb, the, the dangerous opportunity or, yeah, or yeah. whatever dangerous it was. Dangerous opportunity, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the dangerous opportunity we face and I think we can feel it. We could go one way or the other. And I agree with you, there's that 71 million people that we, we can't ignore. But I think the challenge, the dangerous opportunity is to go there feeling the same itch, the same disconnect, the same pain yeah. as yeah. us. Yeah. Now, what's been lacking is a convincing dialogue, um, inspiring enough leadership that says there's a way that's actually better than the way that we've been doing, which is about polarisation and fragmentation. Um, and that's what we need to start to steer our compass towards. And I, I, I don't know if Biden is that person, but I think that he certainly has an understand, a compassionate, a compassion for that 71 million. I don't think he wants to fragment further. And I think the dialogue so far has been about inclusivity and meeting in that common field. Yeah. And that's the challenge we face. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here having a cup of coffee and then, I don't know, the pages just turned and it says also by Sarah Wilson. And these are some of the other books that you've written. <laughs> And I have a beautiful cup of coffee that is so sweet and luxurious, Sarah. <laughs> yes. Okay, start with, I quit sugar. I quit sugar for life. I quit sugar slow cooker cookbook. And <laughs> I quit sugar kids cookbook. Uh, also it goes my, on and on, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm thinking, holy Jesus, I'm going to have to do that before I can do anything, it seems. Yeah, well, Why did you I come said, up with that, that in particular? Yes, of course, of course, of course. But how did you come up yeah, with I should do a book story. about it. It's your first book, right? Yeah, it was an interesting story. So I got very sick in my mid-30s. And my background is a bit of an odd one, which I kind of love. I, lo I quite like contrasts, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a Murdoch journalist. I started off um, in political writing. And um, I then um, became... I don't know how this happened, but I became the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Australia at the age of 29, wow. never having read the magazine in my life. Um, I then ended up hosting a number of um, very big TV shows, the biggest TV show in Australian history, MasterChef Australia, the first series. Um, and so I did all these very, very mainstream odd things. Now, what happened, of course, I ended up sort of being a square peg banging myself into a round hole because my spiritual yearnings have been very, very prevalent throughout my life. I've always had a spiritual practice. I've had an inquisitive mind and heart in that area and I've been drawn to it all my life. And it reached a point in my mid-30s where I was not on the right path. So what happened is I was gifted with an illness that slammed me to the pavement. Mm. Um, it was perfect mm. as for someone as A-type and, you know, with such a white-knuckled grip on life. And um, I got very, very sick and I had to heal myself. And I went about this journey of, of doing that. I wrote a newspaper column called This Week I dot, dot, dot. And I went off and interviewed His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I, I meditated with him. I 
spoke with Brene Brown and cried on her shoulder. I did all these different adventures. You know, Deepak Chopra and I talked about being able to travel without traveling with your body. And, and it was a very interesting wild ride that, that killed two birds with one stone, to use a horrible phrase. But I was trying to heal myself and get the answers I personally need while at the same time earning a living. Um, and, um, one of the experiments I did in that time, I was short of a topic, it was New Year's Eve. And so I went this week, I dot, 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 quit sugar. So that became the title of a column in a newspaper, then a blog post that then just got bigger and bigger and Mm. bigger, turned into an ebook when ebooks were very new, Mm -hmm. this is 11 years ago. And then it became a print book, which then became a New York Times bestseller. And now it sells in 52 countries around the world. And I developed a digital business that enabled people to do this program, this eight-week program. Two and a half years ago, I shut it all down and sold all the assets off and gave it all to charity. And I continue to give 80% of my income to charity. So all income from the I Quit Sugar, you know, sort of behemoth um, continues to go to charity. So Mm. that's the story. Wow. That's was always I quit sugar, not you must quit sugar. So, you know, if you've got a sugar or two in your coffee there, go for it. It's, uh, it's a <laughs> gentle you. invitation I, that, I, that I offer. Yeah, so the guilt and shame that I had as Please I read no. those. No, Please okay. no. no I, do <laughs> I don't pay that much attention to my thoughts, so I'm okay. Um, but this book, here you say, I realize that what we're all feeling at the most basic level is disconnected. Disconnected from what matters, disconnected from life as we thought we were meant to be living it, and disconnected from our care and love for it all. And this book encompasses all of that, including the environment, including the kind of economic system that we have become used to. And uh, those causes and conditions are very, those habitual patterns are very difficult to break. Uh, which why I keep pushing back to you about going outward and doing the things that are necessary to make the changes that have to happen on this planet. Uh, I, you, there has to be an inward push at the same time that the outward push is going on because it just won't be uh, effective in the way that it needs to be effective. So um, I, um, yeah, talk- I very much agree with you. And 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 while you're talking about my bio of books that I've written. Yes. Uh, First We Make the Beast Beautiful was the book before this one. Oh, yes, and yes. It's Talk almost a part one. It's uh-huh. a, it's the, that's the inward journey to understand our inner anxiety. And so it's a philosophical and spiritual path to reframing anxiety, you know. And so in some ways this second book is a juxtaposition to that. It's like part one you go inwards as per what you're saying. You have to have a inner dialogue to your service to, to really hit its target. And um, I don't disagree with you at all. I suppose, you know, there's, there's the part one and there's part two, you know, and, and the times have dictated when I've written those books, you know. Um, the, the first book took me seven years to write and it was a journey wow. that was a longer journey and you'd probably agree that it's a very long journey, that inward journey. You know, it's life, well, lifetime, lifelong. lifetime, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, the two the two books kind of work together in mm. many ways, but they are, I feel, appropriate to where we are in mm-hmm. history. Yeah. yeah, yeah, beautiful. Uh, I'll have to get a copy of that that one. I'll actually. get you one. Yeah? I'll get you oh, one. Okay, yeah, great, of yeah. course. I, I really, there's so much, uh, I mean, I could do two or three podcasts with you. I mean, I have enough notes that are going through. This book, uh, <laughs> well, I'll stop interrupting so you can ask your questions. But uh, yeah, yeah, I love these conversations. Yeah. Well, I don't have so many questions. I just, I like to uh, elaborate on some of the things like when we talk about disconnect, and I just read that, that's a, as a central theme. And, um, and the first presentation of that, I think, is I am seeing it everywhere. And as the director of this foundation, I see all the mail that comes to the email that comes in and, you know, it's tough stuff. And, you know, now, especially Ramdas isn't here and it falls onto us that we're with him back in the day and all that to respond in some way. But loneliness is the first presentation as you, as you say in here. Uh, yeah. It's just, um, that's become a pandemic 
from the pandemic, but it was there mm-hmm. before, I think, as you say in the book. This is not new uh, because of uh, the pandemic. So, yeah, talk about that and, and um, how, how we fall into that and what are some of the things. For me, it's all about uh, in introducing you to this podcast audience is about introducing ideas and some methodology about just moving your perspective a little bit left, right, back, something that uh, allows you to have some spaciousness from being caught in the story and the thoughts and all that. Yeah, so lonely. Yeah, I I love that as a lens to go through. That's a great way of putting things. That's what I like to do as well, pulling yourself back from the cinema screen. Um, Look, I think the pandemic essentially magnified what was already happening around us. And so the loneliness piece, it intensified what we were already feeling What I think we're already feeling is not so much the traditional understanding of loneliness, um, i.e. separation from other individuals, because if anything, we've got more social connections than ever before, and it's essentially part of the problem. We're too hyper-connected. The missing piece is is meaningful connection. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I really try to flesh out and to show that there's this sort of paradox going on. The more social connections we have, it's almost like the more lonely we are from meaningful connection. And I think the loneliness is not just from other people. And um, I think in terms of reframing and repositioning things, we also need to see that it's a loneliness from ourselves. So having a Mm. meaningful relationship with ourselves and quite often, and there's many people, wiser people than myself, who've said that to conquer loneliness, you need to be alone. And Mm -hmm. I think Virginia Woolf said something to that effect and I think Frederick Nietzsche, a number of different people have said this over the years, that you need to, to be alone to be able to develop a truly meaningful connection um, with yourself. You know, it's a pulsing in and out, as you know. Um, And then, of course, the the big thing for me at the moment at least, um, and for many of us, is the disconnection from a meaningful relationship with life. And that's almost like a moral or ethical consideration. And David Brooks, who's a incredibly interesting mm, economist yeah. and former Republican who wrote, writes for the New York Times, he speaks about this idea of moral um, aloneness or yeah. moral loneliness. Yeah, and you wrote And I think that. it's a really, really interesting way of seeing things. The ancient Greeks referred to it as acedia, and it's this listful listless slothfulness, a hard thing to say when you've got a slight lisp, Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it comes about from feeling disconnected from that moral matrix, the very fibre of life. And so I actually cover this off, as you know, early in the book because I feel we need to actually pull apart what we're talking about here. What are we lonely from? That's the beautiful question that we need to ask ourselves we're lonely from meaningfulness and from a dis- from a connection with the essence, the spirit of life. We're not meeting life. We're not attuned with the life force. And so that's the challenge. And then that becomes a far more interesting, beautiful challenge, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I sort of kick things off and I break things down a little bit before I move on to some selves, some ways to start to yeah. move things in direction of more meaningful connection. You know, I love this quote from Patty Smith you you had in the book, though. I've never seen this. Maybe I just, it's from a song, or I'm not sure. A newborn cries, no, it got to be, it's prose. So, a newborn cries as the cord is severed, seeming to extinguish memory of the miraculous. I love that. Mm, the memory of the, the miraculous. miraculous. Thus we are condemned <laughs> to stagger rootless upon the earth in search for our fingerprint on the cosmos. Isn't that wow, Patty Smith, eh? That's a yeah. knock-it-out-of-the-park kind of quote. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, I think memory of the miraculous because it's yeah. there and that's what causes us pain. I refer to it as an itch, a sense that we are not living life as we're meant to, that we're missing something. And it is that idea that, there's a miracle. Life is a miracle. It's wild and precious. And nature has traditionally always reconnected us with awe. You know, um, we feel we surrender 
in in the face of nature and its magnificence. And um, I find, you know, and I'm giving away the, the whole the premise of the book, the ending, <laughs> oh. which is connect with nature and then things start to just attune. We get back in balance. And I think, yeah, the memory of the miraculous, we've mm. got to, we've, we, we can't let go of that. We've got to honour and treasure that memory because we don't forget it's there. And that's why I am hopeful because it is mm. our nature um, mm. to, to, to be in that miracle. You know, I'm, we see a lot of uh, next-gen people uh, coming through. Uh, we, we have a very significant part of the audience is that. And, and of course, psychedelics is certainly a core of how people are finding the ineffability of the miraculous, shall we say. And I, I just, and the way that, of course, all this work is being done working with psychedelics with people from PTSD to dying to addiction and all of that and the way that that's happening. And I hope continues, the government continues to support that uh, is uh, incredible. I think it's going to go a long way to doing just what you're talking about and what we are talking about, making that turn, just moving a little bit, get that perspective starts to turn and you can see that, uh, the the core interconnectivity that we who we are and the way we uh, are uh, what we are and who we are to each other uh, the distance just gets completely uh, shortened and yes. uh, uh, now that's there's maybe a little bit of um, talk about new agey banter there in terms of the toughness of what. Is, has gone on and what is going on, the problems with social media. Uh, do you see that social media uh, social dilemma? dilemma? Social dilemma. Mm. Oh, yeah. my God. Mm, I know. That, that, has, that has had a big impact on a lot of people. Yeah. Um, equally, a really wonderful podcast, if anybody's uh, wanting to sidestep from your wonderful podcast <laughs> to try a slightly different avenue, um, The Rabbit Hole that New York Times does. It oh, talks yeah. about um, sort of it follows some people who go down the rabbit hole of oh, sort of wow. media and explains a lot of the conspiracy theories and how people get addicted to those. Yeah. yeah. Very, very, very wow. uh, fascinating. Fascinating. Really? So okay. as a side note. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. The other thing, though, uh, um, you you do bring up, which I I can't say I found it odd because it, it's based in real real time truth capitalism and and the effect therein and the ways in which we've grown up with something that we've never questioned although not not quite true for me because i'm from montreal by the way yeah i can hear that (laughs) you can yeah uh so i grew up and my mother was a marxist and it, it was all about you know fighting for us and not the 1%. And so I, I had a little bit of it. And being Canadian is completely, well, you're Australian there. See, we're we're part of the kingdom, the old it's kingdom. The Commonwealth. Yeah, the Commonwealth, yes. yeah, whatever. I saw the Queen once when I was about four years old. Um, so anyhow, I uh, I do think this is... Uh, and, and a very worrisome thing related to like just look at all of the next gen that were so into Bernie Sanders here, mm. and uh, and then you go to uh, to the far right and the fear of him is extraordinary. Mm. So uh, yeah, uh, so that polarization in yeah. itself, however, is symptomatic of the capitalist system. So, for for people listening, what I do is fairly early on in the book, I cover off the fact the big one of the big reasons why we are where we are at today is because of our adherence and our blind adherence to the capitalist system. And in fact, at one point I say, let's consider it as a cult. And I, you know, get the official definition of a cult and line up capitalism. And it essentially ticks all the boxes. Um, And when you're in a cult, you don't know 
that you're in a cult, okay, because it's all encompassing. You don't realise that there's an other. And if there is another, i.e. socialism, communism, they, they're essentially an enemy. It's just, you know, it's a given. Um, and we certainly don't consider that might be something other than the other. You know, there might be you know, some other solutions, infinite solutions. Um, so I, I do that because I essentially want to alleviate people's individualistic guilt. So individualism goes both ways. It makes it all about me, 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 but it also gives licence to governments and corporations yeah. to right. blame us all. And so we walk around in this kind of freedom orientated um, sort of utopian vision while at the same time carrying the huge burden that everything's our fault, right? So if the world's falling apart, it's because we're not recycling well enough. And so there's this two-way thing and I really wanted to break it apart so that people could stand back once again, take themselves back further in the cinema so that they can see they're watching a, a system unfurl and go, all right, I can alleviate myself of this guilt so I can move more into action and do something about this. Guilt stops us from acting. So that was my modus operandi to dedicating a very large chapter to breaking this down. <laughs> but we are in the situation we're in because we have lost an understanding and respect for the collective. And mm. we are expected to go out and get ahead you know, think about the way parents talk about their children. I need my child to get ahead. They need opportunities. And, of course, who are you yeah. getting ahead of? You're getting ahead of your cousins, your neighbours, children. Um, and it's a mindset that um, at times has kind of served humanity. It's certainly brought, a, brought, a, um, brought along a, a bunch of freedoms, a certain amount of opulence. It certainly lifted a lot of the the. the you know, the third world into the second world. So there's a bunch of benefits. But like all systems, they can start to unravel and they can no longer service, and that's where we're at today. Neoliberalism has got to a point, and neoliberalism is the extension of capitalism, where we have got rid of what I call the moral umpires on the field. We used to have things like spiritual traditions, even churches, trade unions. We used to have these even the scouts movement, whatever it was, we had these structures in place that would ensure that our individualism didn't run rampant, that we still kept a balance with the collective. And we, we it kind of kept us on the, provided what David Brooks calls moral guardrails, you mm, know, yeah. and it's prevented us from going into that horrible moral aloneness where it's a free-for-all and we no longer have attachments to sort of moral certitudes. So that is the problem I have with capitalism. And I think it's really, really pertinent that we get out of our capitalist bubble, the cult bubble, stand back and go, okay, we are in a system and we can choose to dismantle it. We can choose to alter it and shift it so that we can, we can best serve our lives. And um, that, that, was my, that was my reasoning to pulling it apart. And as you know, I go on a hike to explain it because it's a pretty dry subject. So I try to make it a bit sexy and I go hiking in Sierra Nevada in California. And, in <laughs> fact, um, that was a trip that I did towards the end of the book uh -huh. because I needed to find a way to make that part of the book um, appealing mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. There's a, so many hikes in this book, I was tired by the time I finished it. <laughs> you reckon you were? <laughs> no, yeah, really. No, there, it's a beautiful part of it. I really love that part of it. Um, okay, I want to know about, this is something I never heard about, the Greek. Uh, um, philotimo. Philotimo? Philotimos. Philotimo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Love of honor and honor of love. Uh, oh, you got to ex really get into that because that, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's, you know, certainly that's our bhakti yoga tradition, basically. It is. It is. You're right. I think it's, um, it's a tradition that the Greeks kind of have in their blood. And when I spoke to the Greeks there about it, and I've, I've experienced it many, many, many times since I was 18 when I first went to Greece, um, they say they just grow up with it. It's just considered as a kid you're taught it, you're expected to practice it, it's just part of their existence. And like I say in the book, it's not like they they turn it into a trophy 
you know, they don't have it sort of on the billboards at the airport as you enter Greece, you know, uh, the land of Philotimos. It's, it's just what they do. And they don't expect a pat on the back for it. And I'll explain why. It's almost like the best way to understand it, it's almost like that notion of paying it forward, except that it, it's this idea that you, you help out a stranger. It's the honour that you receive from showing love to a stranger in particular. So you do whatever you can to help, to provide, to, to bring a stranger into your home, to feed a stranger, to help them out when they're a few euros short. Um, and that the Greeks just do it all the time. It's just what they do. And their ethos, their thinking is not that it will, they're paying it forward um, in the sense that they're expecting, you know, to get something in return their thinking is that they've already received, right, countless times from other strangers and therefore they've just got to, they've just got to hand it on to the next person. They feel that their cup is already full. In fact, it's running over so they've got to pass it on. So it's a really, really lovely concept. I mean, look, every culture has its, its upsides and its downsides, but this is certainly an aspect of the Greek culture which they, they do live out. They all know the word. And um, they sort of almost dismiss it, like, oh, yeah, doesn't everyone do it, you know? And I've experienced it countless times and I thought I, I explained that shortly after the capitalist um, chapter because it's a counterpoint. It's a reminder of what actually brings us joy. Um, and there's countless studies now that show that when we are of service, when we even just watching somebody else doing something for someone else, you know, um, mm. brings us joy. And and there's quite a number of studies that talk about that. So it's it. I fleshed that chapter out just to sort of remind us of the fact that that is our nature as well, mm. you know, That's, is to be in that space. It's, it's key for everything, key premise mm -hmm. for absolutely everything in the book, everything in terms of our own individual daily lives, of being able to flesh that out connected to us so we understand and otherwise it's a difficult road but you had some cool experiences though in greece that really were exempt exemplified this tell tell a story or two or something oh yeah well um i mean i i've come across i first came across it actually during the syrian refugee crisis when there were syrians washing up on the shores of some of the greek islands oh, yeah. and some of the Greek fishermen forwent their income for several months by literally just going out every day and sailing around looking for refugees that might be in trouble and, you know, picking them up and so they didn't drown. And um, that word was bandied around at the time by I think the New York Times or the New Yorker who went, you know, they went across and did a story on it because I think they, they uh, were up for a Nobel Peace Prize, these fishermen. But I came across it when... Um, I've spent a lot of time in Greece and um, hiking and on one particular hike I ended up in this canyon that took, you know, hours to get to and I got there and, of course, being Greece, um, they didn't accept cash. Oh, sorry, they didn't accept credit card. It was cash only and, of course, I didn't. I only had a credit card stuffed down my bra, my hiking bra, and I was a little bit stumped. But as I said to myself in my head at the time, I'm in Greece this is not going to be a problem. So I sort of go to the front of the, the entry, you know, to this sort of national park to go and do this big walk. And uh, I know full well they're just going to let me through. But turns out there's this Greek guy that comes running up and says, here's your ticket. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I saw you. You didn't have any cash. I bought you a ticket. Anyway, he and I, he was just this little geek who'd never been on a hike before. He brought thermoses and sam multiple sandwiches and he brought his <laughs> laptop and he oh, i mean he just got it all wrong you know uh it was quite funny but we spent 24 hours together just hiking and then listening to music and we still write to each other i mean he's oh. much much younger than me um and it all started from just a five euro entry free fee ticket and he mm. Um, and, and, it, and it's led to this beautiful, beautiful friendship. Mm. And he writes to me and he says, my dear, dear Sarah, and that's how every one of his letters starts. And we write emails to, to, to each other. He's not on social media. He has no idea. He probably has no idea who he's mentioned in the book. I'll, I'll, send him I'll, a book. Uh, yeah, I'll have to send him a book. But those kinds of stories happen. Yeah. And look, they happen in all different cultures. There's a number of cultures that still honour those kinds of practices. Um, 
they'll either be ingrained in the spiritual traditions or in the cultural traditions. Yeah. And that's what I mean by moral guardrails. Yeah. Yeah. Our culture has forgotten them, you know, to use the, the Patty Smith concept. Yeah. We've forgotten those miracles, yeah. you know, yeah. and that, that make life worth living. They make life wild and precious. And, and we also, this is something that happened to us in India uh, when we were introduced to the families uh, that were hanging around this being. And we would go to their houses, they would feed us and so on and teach us really by being what a real family is. And uh, a good example is, so you go into this house, you demand what you want. You do not... Please, Ask. can you give me? Hmm. Yeah, there's no asking. So one day, not long ago, one of our mentors uh, who just passed a year ago, right after Ramdas, who's his best friend in India, he had a picture that I saw, and I it was in a. I wanted to take a picture of it, but I wanted to get it out of the glass case. So I took the whole thing and I went over to him and I said can I take this picture out of the case? I, I want to take a photograph of it. He looked at me like I had just slapped him in the face. I mean, his whole <laughs> face got drawn and sad. And I looked up at him and I went, oh, right, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> so give me a picture. <laughs> that yeah. kind of thing, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just, we just don't have that. I mean, we just in the West... I'm assuming not much different uh, in in Australia, actually. Yes, it's, um, uh, yes, so. no. We are we are up there in terms of that sort of that really, oh yeah, disconnected, fragmented yeah. paradigm. You know where we're forgotten. We're forgotten yeah. what our nature truly is. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Uh, so there's uh, you talk about the soul nerd. I like that term, soul nerd. Yeah, you got to say what that is. But um, there's uh, just. You have some lovely poetic turns of prose here. That well, can I you. read another thing? It's Please. in. <laughs> so you're talking about in these mindful spaces between the words that I came to practice, touching the vastness of the universal, our nature, and our place in nature. This is soul nerd. Nerding out on matters of the soul also reveals. We've been asking the same questions for millennia. We are not alone with our concerns. In fact, our collective yearning to meet in these mindful spaces could be the whole point of it all. Hmm. Very great, Sarah. Thank you very, very much. Great. Yeah. I soul nerding is almost almost like a spiritual practice in the sense that you apply yourself to to a thing, to a set of mindfully placed lessons and ideas and even just musical notes because I think that classical music is a form of soul nerding. You apply yourself to creations made by other humans that have all been geared towards pointing to that thing, that thing. And, of course, I only point to it, right? And I think um, I didn't grow up um, literary or artistic. You know, I'm a bit of a... I'm a bit of a philistine, um, and just to give some background, I grew up in a subsistence living property uh, with goats for milk and meat, and um, it was a very basic existence, very unusual at the time. Um, lots of brothers and sisters, and we were all a bit feral. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I learnt these things later in life, generally through access to different minds and ideas. As once I became a journalist, which opened the world to me, and um, I've had to learn these. You know, I've had to learn poet, poetry. I didn't learn these things when I was younger and, and I had to learn about art and it was quite good in a way to go with that naive perspective. The naivety enabled me to actually go straight to the thing and the thing is often revealed, as I say, in those spaces or it will be in the gaps in the brush stroke and that's where you are left, you suspend, you're left suspended. And that's where you've got to work it out for yourself. And you join the artist or the poet or the scientist in reaching forward, you know, to, to that which we yearn for. So um, 
soul nerding can be a great practice and and there's that extra dimension of course that we do start to realize that there are these this has been part of the human endeavor is to to understand these spaces and be in these spaces together and I certainly came across this when I was writing first we make the beast beautiful I found great comfort in reading about the struggles that other people especially creatives and especially people that contributed big time to to the human endeavor what how they struggled with their anxiety and how they framed it and how they worked out their practices to be able to modulate it and thrive with it um, and and so and the same with understanding or, or, or reconnecting with what matters with the miraculous once again I realized that there were wonderful writers Patty Smith for example mm, mm. Um, you know and the application to to their words and to their art and to their thinking and to their spirit, um, just it, you go straight to connection. So my book's full of these white, these shortcuts to connection. Boom! It's like that for those of you who've got a, a an Apple computer. When you put the the old uh, little plug in, the electrical power cord, how it go suction in. There's that sort of connection, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, and I feel that when I read some of these literary texts or when I listen to classical music, things that just try to take us there. So mm. that's a really wonderful discipline. Yeah. Okay, so my son is a nerd, but he's a he's a tech nerd, and now I'm going to get with him and say, you know what? We're one brotherhood now, son. <laughs> I'm a soul let's, nerd and you're a tech nerd. But it's well, let's all go and one. play Nintendo together and see if we can connect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my. And the gap, when you mentioned the gap, um, it reminds me of exactly what you're saying, but down into the deepest part of a. And I know, I believe you're a Vipassana practitioner. Is that correct? Not Vipassana. I've, um, I've, I do Vedic form of meditation uh-huh. and I've done various types of Ayurvedic sort of um, techniques and mm. retreats in India and so on. And, uh-huh. yeah, do you know yeah. Robert Svoboda, by the way? No, no, Ooh, I don't. Oh, got to turn you on to him. He's a okay. great Vedic uh, uh, practitioner. And, yeah, I'll, I'll give you all of that. Please real, do. Real, yeah, <laughs> but... Um, Trungpa Rinpoche, are you familiar with who he is? Yeah, yes. He was a major yes. Western uh, teacher in the West, um, and uh, many of us uh, spent time with him, me uh, a little bit, but enough to get some beautiful teachings from him. And he used to talk about through the meditative pra- uh, practice, which uh, really just going inside, and basically they start with the breath, the Buddhist and mm-hmm. which is what uh, Vipa- insight meditation starts with. Uh, and then at some point, through some very diligent practice, shall we say, there comes a gap between the thoughts, events, um, phenomena. And that gap is what we would... Um, we would pursue with the Buddha and whoever else is part of that which is the universal intelligence and ask for that gap to be expanded. That's more from my tradition than the Buddhist because the Buddhist is all about you You, you experience and prove it out to yourself. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness says, don't trust anybody. You don't even trust the Buddha. Don't trust me. You got to. So my tradition is, um, a combination of that with uh, yes. beseech, you know, the duality thing of, of beseeching. Yep, I can hear that. Yeah. So, mm. um, uh, but that gap is certainly uh, to um, to cultivate, shall we say, the gap mm-hmm. is something that can extend to all of the external parts of one's life, not just absolutely. Uh, and then it reflects out into the our outer world yeah. as an expansiveness, a capacity to deal with nuance, um, and it 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 relaxes that that sort of fractured, tight polarization, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. of course is 
where, you know, so many of our ills stem from at the moment. Mm. But um, the, other, the other one, just when you bring up some of those traditions, the other way of soul merging, another way to access that sort of expansive gap is um, koans. And I, and I share a couple of those in, mm. in the book. Mm. And I love them because I've got such an A-type mind it takes some real trickery to get me to kind of mm-hmm. do that flip, you know, and koans are really wonderful for that yeah. because it gets you to engage in a logical sort of formation and all of a sudden it stumps you. Mm-hmm. You go to the end of the line of, of logical cerebral thinking and you're left with just expansiveness. You are plunged mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. you know, exactly, yeah. and you kind of go, I mean, I end up sort of looking like a little mystified five-year-old, you know, like, how the hell did that happen? How did my mind not see that coming? And that's the beauty of it. Mm. So yeah. I, I talked through a couple of those that you can, and, and for those of you who are um, audiobook listeners, it can actually be quite good because I talk it out and you can actually do it. Oh, in the, in the uh, you read the audiobook, right? I did. Yeah. yeah oh, with, so great. with all my lisping and my Australian accent. So <laughs> that may or may not appeal. <laughs> no, of course it does. And you, you bring up somebody else who I think uh, it's an important share with the, with, uh, the listeners and our community, which is Pema Chodron, of course. Uh, and yes. Many people are familiar with her. Um, but she said, you quoted her, life is a whole journey of meeting your edge again and again. She writes in The Wisdom of No Escape. That's where if you're a person who wants to live, you start to ask yourself questions like, now, why am I so scared? What is it that I don't want to see? Why can't I go any further than this? She explains just going to your edge, wherever it might be, and everyone's edge is different, is all that needs to happen. So, yeah, maybe explicating the edge, uh, I think this is a, a good analogy. Yeah, I love that concept and it's sort of mm. similar to that wisdom that a few other thinkers, contemporary thinkers share, which is um, it's meant to be uncomfortable. When you're uncomfortable that is a really good sign that that's where you're meant to be. And Pima says this in a number of her books, the edge is where you need to be. And I think we live in a culture where we run from the edge, we run from discomfort. Every bit of technology, every bit of sort of daily life is about cocooning ourselves from the edge. So we don't even have an awareness or an experience of it. Um, And I'd say young people today who've grown up with technology you know, it's playing out and I, and I share how it's playing out, um, you know, in, in their real life, you know, and they're at a major disadvantage. The thing about being at your edge, and I describe it as this, it's a bit like when you are not at your edge and you've cocooned yourself from discomfort, you're hanging around the trunk of the tree and, yep, it's stable and it's nice and safe and you don't get much of a breeze and you can kind of get into a nice foggy, uh, warm space of watching Netflix and ordering in Uber Eats and you don't actually have to fend or engage or kind of take any IRL risks, you know. When you are at your edge, you actively either plonk there, which can be a great gift, illness, difficult circumstances, just everyday life, or you can actually... Seek it out in such a way that you're curious and you run it as a lifelong experiment, which is certainly what I choose to do. That is, you find yourself or you actively go out to the outer limbs of the tree. On the outer limbs, you get to breathe the fresh, sharp air. And now you're tossed around. Of course you're tossed around. The elements throw you around. There's sunlight, there's wind, Mm -hmm. and it's perilous and it can feel scary. And you do have to flex with the movement of life. But that is where it's all at. That's where you get to see, you get the perspective, you get the the fresh air that clarifies your thoughts. That's where real living happens and it's also where we create. And, you know, I cite a whole number of studies that show that when we're fending, when we're creating, when we're building, when we're DIYing, when when we're having to deal with hardship and create something out of nothing, that's when we're at our happiest. And we're actually also able to be of most service, which is, you know, obviously my modus operandi at the moment. Mm. So um, the edge, if you're feeling at the edge, rather than running from it, I think the mantra that is really useful at the moment, I certainly employ it, is I go, this is where I'm meant to be. Mm -hmm. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, I go, all right, stuff's starting to happen. 
is yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. By the way, there's a great book. I just looked it up uh, while you were talking. Uh, that is a goes way into this. Somebody I respect a lot, Roshi Joan Halifax, who's a wonderful uh, teacher, Zen teacher in yeah. New Mexico, and it's called um, the. As she talks about it. It's, it's called Standing at the Edge. Fantastic okay. book. Uh, from, I'm gonna look that one up. Yeah, yeah, and everybody else. Well, we're gonna put this in the show notes too. all the different things we've been talking about, not to mention links to your books and so on. Um, so the, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about the, there's the epidemic of COVID and then there's the epidemic of disconnection and there's the epidemic of loneliness and there's an epidemic of anxiety. And just, uh, I did a thing, where are we, Monday? Yeah, yesterday with a group and, and a lot, you know, just doing Q&A about what could help on the path and all that. Um, mm. And resilience was a big, big question. And, uh, yeah, and I talked about how you must look at the way you are seeing your relationship with who you think you are with the world. And that's a perspective. And to move that perspective is a big challenge. And and you talk about it uh, here. And, um, you know, and some of this is tough stuff. It's not kids lacking resilience with dealing with the anxiety. Uh, so they're not building the resilience to cope with everyday life, and which you know is a brimful of uh, uncertainty, doubt, discomfort, flux, delays, irritations, and so on. Um, and... You know, this is something I look at going forward. Uh, I have three gr grandchildren, for instance, and see all of the possibilities. Now, karma is real, and so and yeah, causes and conditions, and which way we turn to create the kind of future causes and conditions, and. Um, I think one of the most important things I hear you say in this book is we just, and you just said it before in, in one way, is how we push away any kind of uh, suffering yes. so that we, we constantly are defending against it. And I see it in myself and I see it with everybody around me. The fact that I may have gotten a little bit wiser off these decades of, of doing this kind of work is just a, a reflection of grace, as far as I can tell, in terms of not believing in the story and the thoughts the way that it used to, having more of a gap in terms of reactivity and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, talk about resilience and how you, yeah. you feel. This is such an important uh, point for, for our future. Well, you said it yourself, um, you know, I, I was actually called upon by the National Press Club, which is the big sort of, um, it, it, it's held by the parliament and it's um, televised um, nationally and they get various speakers to come on and talk about prominent issues. And I was invited to come and talk about anxiety amongst children because I'd written this book about anxiety and I had to actually shift the topic to it being about resilience because I feel mm. that the lack of resilience mm. is the far, far bigger issue for young people. Because um, as you say, we've cocooned our children, but we've cocooned ourselves. Our entire culture works towards avoidance of suffering, which A, is hard work to do. Avoiding suffering is an impossible task. Um, <laughs> Buddha also, said that, what it, yeah. That's right. You could spend an entire life doing it and uh, and then you die, um, which is, you know, ultimately ends your suffering. But um, the the other thing is that it actually means that you miss out on life. And, and I feel that we have protected our children. We've trained them to avoid, every, you know, all the, the discomforts. Um, but it basically means that they're not equipped to deal with everyday life. And that's that's the real epidemic, the dangerous epidemic that we face. And, you know, you, you said that it's grace that has afforded you some understanding of this and the ability to deal with suffering and see the beauty in it. I would also say that it's you've been immersed in a culture that respects it and has a dialogue around it, you know, a tradition that that talks about the value of it. 
Now, we used to have that. We used to have initiation ceremonies. We had rites of passage that taught us that moving from adolescence into adulthood requires developing a certain resilience and understanding of, you know, um, life's pain and taking responsibility for that within yourself. You know, that's, that's essentially what initiation ceremonies are about. They send you out into the wilderness, to the unknown. They throw you into uncertainty and you have to face it yourself and you come back and you're, you're an adult. And I make this point in my book. We have become, um, I, I think that our culture is in a suspended state of adolescence, um, which can be lovely and irresponsible and fun and, you know, sort of surface-like, but all of us crave true actualization I suppose into our full version of ourselves we want to become adults and we need to become adults once again to meet life where it's calling us to be so yeah there's some of the things that I talk about and we have to cultivate it ourselves because we don't have those institutions and traditions so much anymore if you've got a really good strong spiritual practice that's really honest and you're honest with it then you've done work in suffering even if it's sitting in a lotus position for way longer than you'd prefer but we need to practice and cultivate some of those you know lots of studies have shown it's really like a muscle and it's just yep. got to yep. be cultivated. It's got to be stressed yep. to be able to work for us. And we've got more uncertain times than ever before. We've got more fragmented times. We've got discomfort coming ahead with the climate crisis. Like it's going to get more uncomfortable, not less. So the sooner we start to get a tradition and a practice around resilience, the better, especially amongst young people because they are suffering. And this is a discussion that I have with young people is I try to get them to understand this is not you having an illness or an issue or an anxiety thing, you know. This is about the way that we've all brought you up. And so let's reverse that, you know. Let's actually start to work on that. You're not the issue. It's the culture that's the issue. Yeah, We've got to start yeah. to have that discussion with young people. And then, of course, once they're in that space, they can then be comfortable with taking on responsibility once they understand the issues at play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you say, uh, this, this goes to the uh, dangerous opportunity. The darkness we found ourselves in might just be the very thing that reconnects us to life again. And yep. that, that is the core, core of what we're talking about. Um, well, we're, we're at the end of our, well, we've gone over. What will the sponsors say? Uh, <laughs> but I saw something that gave me the feeling of what you've done in this book. And it's a little poem by Rumi, who I know you've quoted also in the book, who we all love, of course. Uh, so this is it. This is this is how I would, if I was to write a review of the book, I'd say, I don't think I have to say anything, but just this poem will tell you okay, what I right. got. Forget safety. Live where you fear to live. Destroy your reputation. Be notorious, Rumi. Huh? I love that poem so much that I've also quoted it in my book. Oh. It's this idea of deviance, isn't it? It's it's the wildness. It's the it's the going beyond the rules and the strictures that have held us back from truly living. And uh, yeah, I, I love that you've decided to uh, chosen to review it with that particular particular yes. poem because it speaks to me, especially at this stage in my life as I enter mm. the second half of my life, and mm. um, which is a very interesting process to go through, especially as a woman and. Um, that notion of being notorious, of forgetting your reputation, and uh, that deviant wildness—it it it brings me great joy, great mm, joy. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, and by the way, everybody, uh, the level of honesty in this book from uh, Sarah recounting personal experiences—that uh, would be a whole other podcast, all on its own—is. Uh, uh, Pretty great. Thank you. Very great. Thank you. So, Thanks thank, for saying yes. it. So this book is The One Wild and Precious Life, Sarah Wilson. And uh, as I said, all of, in our show notes, all of the links will be there for the books and the other books that we've talked about. And um, thank you so much for being here. 
Really appreciate it again and again. Um, mm. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling and go to Be Here Now Network. And there's so many incredible, Jack Cornfield and uh, Krishna Das and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Golson. We have on and on the most fantastic people, Sarah, that are, are, are in this network and offering all kinds of wisdom to help us on a day-to-day basis. Uh, to get notorious. Notorious <laughs> yeah. and wild. And wild. Thank yeah. you so much for such a wonderfully considered chat from the Absolutely. outside world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We'll see you all next week. Namaste. Namaste.